You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. Matthew chapter 24. And Lord, just as we come to the text again today, just so thankful for the work you did in first service, just in spite of me feeling so weak and and just my brain going everywhere, Lord. I just, I love how you are so faithful uh, to speak because you love these people even more than I do, God. And you want your word to go out with power. And so I just pray you would do that this morning. Lord, that you would save those today that need to be saved. Uh, Lord, that you would encourage those today that need encouragement. That you would revive those who need revival. And Lord, that those that have come today, from the least to the greatest of these, would taste of the fountain of living water that comes from you that they would crave you, and they would just partake to never thirst again. We just worship you as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're in week five of the Olivet Discourse. I know you guys aren't getting tired of it, neither am I. A very exciting section in scripture dealing with the end of time, uh, the end of the world, and uh, some lessons that we've been learning are that we're to be watchful, we're to be careful, we're to be prayerful, and we're to be faithful. As the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus went into a two-chapter discourse called the Olivet Discourse, where he spurs us and exhorts us to be looking for his appearing and to persevere in the midst of trials to be looking for the signposts that show how soon his coming in uh, coming is because man it is coming so quickly one day we're going to open our eyes and we're going to see him face to face we're going to know him just as we are known and i can't wait And so before we dig in completely today, I want to give you guys a little bit of a timeline. And you know, in my youth pastoring days, I've made my own timeline to go up on the thing. And I just feel like it wasn't right for you guys, Um, a little bit amateur, you know, and I've been looking for for something, just haven't found it. So you're going to have to use your imaginations and your pen and your paper and draw the timeline out. And uh, maybe we'll have a contest. Whoever gets the best timeline drawn out, we'll throw it up on the PowerPoint for explanation purposes. But... But here is basically how I believe the the scriptures show us uh, the end of the ages plays out on a a timeline, okay? I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, okay? The rapture of the church. Uh, We've studied from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, how the Lord is going to shout with the voice of a, a loud trumpet. He's basically going to say, come up here, and he's going to catch the church, his bride, up into the air uh, to meet him in the clouds, okay? And that can happen at any second. It's called the imminent return of Christ. It could happen at any second that he'll come to the clouds and we'll meet him there. And uh, so that's the first thing. The, the church caught into the sky to meet the, Lord's in, the Lord in the clouds, okay? Uh, the rapture. Then I believe the next event, shortly after that, will be the Antichrist coming on the scene and making a covenant 
with many. You read about this all throughout Daniel and in Revelation and in uh, Matthew. And uh, he'll, he'll come on the scene and he'll bring peace. Now, keep in mind, imagine if two billion people just randomly vanished off the planet. You know, what that would do to the world. Not to mention, you know, the airplanes and the cars, people that are driving and flying things and all. You know, imagine, you know, the world is going to be in, in havoc like it's never seen before. And someone's going to come on the scene to kind of bring peace. People are going to be looking for someone for answers. And we know that that man, the Antichrist or the son of perdition is going to come on the scene. He's going to bring peace. It's going to seem so great for three and a half years. One of the peace covenants we know he's going to make is between the Jews and the Muslims. Peace in the Middle East. Everybody wants peace in the Middle East. He's going to come. He's going to bring peace so that the Jews can build their temple on the Temple Mount, which is what they've wanted to do forever since it was torn down in 70 AD. Okay. Uh, And right now we talked about last week in Jerusalem, you can go to the Temple Institute And there are a bunch of zealous Jews who've built all of the artifacts for the temple uh, to have it rebuilt. It's ready to go. I've seen with my own eyes the candlesticks, the menorahs, the tables of showbread, the priest's garments, you know. I've seen photographs of the, the breeding grounds for the red heifers and the sacrifices, you know. So it could happen at any second, okay, that that man could come on the scene and bring peace so that the Jews could build their temple On top of Mount Moriah. Okay? So a peaceful three and a half year period. We're directly in the middle of the seven year tribulation period. The abomination of desolations will take place. We read about it in chapter, or verse 16 of chapter 24 here. Okay? The abomination of desolations is when the Antichrist will bring an end to the sacrifices and offerings there in the temple. And he will set himself up to be God and demand to be worshipped, okay? So that's the abomination of desolation. We know it's exactly three and a half years into the tribulation period. The Jews are going to say, this guy's a little bit crazy, and they're going to run away from him. They're going to flee from him. So he's going to persecute them. So for the next three and a half years of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to be trying to kill Israel, just like, you know, Satan's always tried to kill the Jews. Uh, he's going to try to kill the Jews one last final time. And he's also going to try to kill the saints. Okay, the tribulation saints that got saved during the tribulation period. Okay, then at the end of that seven year period, the end of the tribulation, the second coming will happen. Now, the second coming is when Jesus comes with the saints down to the earth and sets up his kingdom here on earth. He's going to come during the battle of Armageddon and he's going to wipe out the Antichrist and his armies and he's going to come and set his feet on the Mount of Olives. We did a big study on that last week. And it's there in Jerusalem that he's going to reign on David's throne such as always been prophesied throughout the scriptures. That he's going to rule on the earth in Jerusalem, in Israel and rule from David's throne. Okay? And he's going to rule... For a thousand years, hope your timelines are looking good. For a thousand year period, he's going to rule on the earth during the millennial reign. We all know what millennia means since, since Y2K, right? You know, it means a thousand years. So for a thousand years, he's going to reign on the earth and we're going to reign with him. Now it's going to be a weird season. I mean, you've got us there. The Christians are there who are there in their glorified bodies But then we're also going to have the tribulation survivors 
that survived the sheep and the goats judgment. They're going to live on the earth and they're going to repopulate the planet for a thousand years. It's going to be a very strange time. I already see some people like, I don't know. Yeah, don't worry. You know, it's a whole year's Bible study in and of itself. Okay. And so as we look through all of this, the main thing is the main thing, you know, I'll just come back. He could come at any second. The next event is us looking into his eyes. And the first Corinthians 15, 51 tells us it's going to happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, uh, which I did a little more research and found out that the twinkle, you know, there, there's the wink, the twink and the blink. Okay. Uh, and the twinkle is a billionth of a second. It's when light reflects off the back of your eyeball and it happens within a billionth of a second. So basically we're going to blink or twink and, and we're going to see Jesus face to face. And it can happen at any second. And according to prophecy, it's the next thing to happen. So we're to be ready and we're to be watching. Now, in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted. Some of you have heard of this story. In southwest Italy, uh, the whole city of Pompeii was completely engulfed in lava. People were heat frozen trying to escape. It's kind of a a sad yet interesting study to do. But one discovery there on Pompeii was of a Roman guard standing straight up, spear in hand, refusing to move as the wall of lava descended down on Pompeii. And he's been frozen in time in that bold, brave stance. You guys, as we see the signs of Christ's coming, getting larger and bigger, and the temptation is to scream in fear, don't be afraid, but be ready and be watchful because he's going to come and he's going to take us. There's the story of, and uh, you'll have to test it according to scripture, but there's the story of Satan having a board meeting down in hell with three demons The devil said each demon needs an idea on how to get more souls into hell. And one, one little demon said, I got an idea. I'll tell him there's no God. The devil said, well, good try, but I tried that and it won't work for everyone because God's placed in them an an instinct to know that there's someone divine out there. You won't get many people into hell that way. The next demon said, well, why don't we tell him there's no heaven or hell? The devil said, well, you'd surprise some people in the end. But for the most, people think that God created men on this earth for more than this life alone. Finally, the third and most intelligent demon stood up and said, I got an idea. I'll tell him there is a God and there's a heaven and a hell, but that there's no hurry that they can believe and not behave. They can think these things, but kind of keep them in a Sunday morning compartment, and that's all. And the devil said, bingo. That's exactly what's going to cause so many to fall. You guys, there's not much time. And the whole Olivet Discourse purpose is to waken us up to say, be ready, be ready, be ready. You know, the Jews right now are looking for the first appearance of the Messiah. You know, they don't think Jesus was the Messiah. And the more time that goes by, the more they realize he's coming soon. 
He is coming soon. In fact, if you go to the Wailing Wall today and you look at the Wailing Wall and then turn directly around, there's a big banner up that says, Messiah is coming soon. Rabbi Schlausch, who's on the executive committee of the Rabbinical Councils of America, believes the Messiah is coming. And back when the, the first Gulf War started, he said in the Wall Street Journal, what's happening now is like labor pains. It's looking pretty messy, but in the end, what will come out is a new and living light. The Messiah may be just an eye blink away. You know, here's a guy, you'd think he's been reading Jesus's words because he's looking, he's realizing the labor pains are getting very extreme and he's realizing we're a blink away. It's all what Jesus said. They're just a little behind. They didn't set their daylight savings time and and catch the Messiah on the first time away. (laughs) Unlike you guys, you guys are faithful. And so as we study and continue on uh, the Olivet Discourse, we're in verse 36 here on Matthew Matthew 24, where the exhortation is, is continued to watch and to be ready. In verse 36, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, but my father only. You know, a lot of guys come on the scene claiming prophecies that, oh, God told me he's going to come on this day at this time. Don't believe them. Don't believe them. Don't go farther than what the scriptures tell us. They tell us no one knows the day or the hour. And, uh, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. But some signs are, verse 30, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be just like the days of Noah. Now, when Jesus talks about the days of Noah, he basically talks about a business as usual lifestyle. Not a watching and waiting, but but people that are consumed with the cares of this world. But Genesis tells us a little more of what the days of Noah were like. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 12, we see that the days of Noah, the Lord looked on men and saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent and thought of man's heart was wicked continually. Very similar to what's going on uh, today. In fact, in Genesis 6, it says that the Lord was sorry that he'd even made man on the earth. I mean, it's hard to think of the Lord thinking that about man, isn't it? I'm just bummed I even created them. And, uh, and so that's when he said, I'm going to destroy man who I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and every creeping thing, bird of the air. I'm sorry I've made them, he says, but there was one man in his family. It says, Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. And in verse 11 of Genesis 6, it says, the earth was corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. You know, I think that we're in a similar day and age where all flesh is corrupt and the Lord is ready to come and set up his kingdom of purity and righteousness and justice like we were just singing in that closing song. 
So the days that Jesus comes, it's going to be like the days of Noah. We're also told from Luke's gospel in chapter 17 that the days are going to be like the days of Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah, where they ate, they drank, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed all of them. And then we're told to remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. You guys remember Lot's wife when they were escorted out of Sodom? They were running because the city was about to be destroyed by God, fire and brimstone. And at the last second, Lot's wife looked back, sorrowful that they were leaving that world and all of its stuff and all of its junk that just ensnares us and traps us. And so she looked back. Her heart was still back there in Sodom. And immediately she turned into a pillar of salt. And so I think that there's, there's good illustrations that Jesus uses of what the days will be like before Jesus comes back. In fact, uh, Noah in the Bible is called a preacher of righteousness. And for a hundred years, this old guy, 500 years old, was building a massive Titanic-sized boat, all while preaching the gospel to the world around him, wondering what he's got in his driveway. You know, what are you building there? Don't worry about it. Just get on it. (laughs) You know, repent of your sins and get on the boat. You're crazy, old man. (laughs) You know, by the way, where'd you get all this money for all this lumber? You know, uh, For a hundred years, he preached righteousness, but the world rejected him. And finally, one day, the rains came down and the floods came up, (laughs) you know, and it was the day to shut the door of the boat. And all of a sudden, once the door was shut, everyone was realizing we should have got on there, you know, and, uh, you know, you see the, the little children's books of the Noah's Ark and, you know, it's just this fun little peaceful scene, you know, all the little animals and uh, horrific. Could you imagine what that day was like as the whole city, the whole world is pounding on the side of the boat to open it up, but it was too late. It was too late. Guys, the warning from the days of Noah are to be ready to get on the boat, to be ready Because it's too late once the door shuts. And so as you go on, we've got that example of Noah. You know, even today there are preachers like Noah pleading, be saved, be saved, run away from your sin, run away from the cares of this world and be saved. But just like the people in Noah's days, they mock the preacher You know, they mock the people that tell them about Jesus. You're a Bible thumper, you know, you're a fundamentalist, you know, and they, and they insult the preachers that are out there. Some of you are preachers, you know, and they reject the gospel. And it's so sad. Uh, We go on to read there that verse 40, two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill One will be taken and the other will be left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. These three verses, I believe, are are the rapture of the church being described. 
You know, um, you know, we're told that we don't know the day or the hour that will be taken. You know, some people say that this is the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation when he comes and sets his feet on the earth. But as we've studied for the last four weeks, we know when the second coming is going to happen. Daniel tells us, Revelation chapter 12 tells us that it'll be three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. The number of days are even specified. 1,260 days after the abomination of desolation, Jesus is going to return to the earth. And so we know when that coming is going to happen, but there is a coming spoken of that we don't know when it's going to happen. And during that coming, two people will be cruising down the street, you know, you know, whistling the Andy Griffith song, you know, and uh, one will be taken, one will be left. You know, two people will be playing Xbox 360, one will be taken, the other will be left. You know, imagine what, what that day will be like. But one will be taken and one will be left. And we're told uh, the Greek word there is paralambano. Paralambano. You might write that down. And it means to receive near someone who is associated with you in an intimate act or relationship. It means to take somebody with you that you're close to, that you love. And the same word, paralambano, is used in Matthew chapter 1 when Joseph takes Mary. Uh, It's also found in Matthew chapter 17 when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then in John chapter 14, verse 1, you guys can flip there if you want, but this is a familiar passage to you. Here's what Jesus says. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the Lord is going to paralambano us. He's going to rapture us. He's going to catch us up because we are his bride. We're going to be taken right before that seven-year period of tribulation that is so bad the world has never seen anything like it before. It will never see anything like it after. And unless Jesus didn't, you know, if Jesus hadn't come again, the whole world would die. Nobody would survive. And so here I just, I believe it's just a picture of the rapture taking place. And so we're warned, watch. You don't know what hour your Lord is coming. Verse 43, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, if you were, you know, told when the robber was going to come into your house and kidnap your children and kidnap your wife and take your wife as a ran- you know, as, as a ransom and, and uh, take all your money and everything. I know you Prineville men, you know, I know that you've got security systems in your house that are so much more than an alarm, you know, they've got 
You've got sharp blades and firing mechanisms and powder, you know, and uh, you're not going to let nobody come in and take, take your children. You know, you're going to fight, of course. And so we're told, you know, be ready, be ready. You don't know when he's going to come, but be ready. Be okay, Lord, I, here I am. You can come at any second and I'm not going to be ashamed at your coming. Verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So we have these lessons from two different servants. We read of the first servant that he's a faithful servant over his master's household. Something interesting, you might just mark in the margin of your Bible, that word household in the Greek is therapeia, where we get our uh, word therapeutic. And it's very interesting that the house of the Lord is a place where therapy happens. You've heard it said that we're like a hospital, the church is, you know, that people can come in off the streets hurting and broken, bruised and bleeding, physically and spiritually, and we'll mend them and we'll give them Jesus who will heal their wounds. And so if you're a servant, you know, today the Lord's entrusted you to be part of that healing work here in Prineville. And when he comes, be a faithful servant. Because if you're faithful, you'll be given a reward for that obedient service. You know, it says in verse 47, he'll make him ruler over all his goods. You know what's awesome? Being a servant of the Lord, if you're obedient and faithful, you want to know what the reward is? More opportunities to serve. Isn't that awesome? Jesus says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you got to be a servant. You guys want a reward? Here's more opportunities to serve and to be used by me. What an awesome reward. I like that reward. In verse 48, we have the lesson from the evil servant. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come at a day when he's not looking for him and at an hour when he's not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so the wicked servant says in his heart, my master delays his coming. He's not coming today. He can't come today. Guys, watch and be ready. He could come at any second. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 5, you read about, you know, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises as some consider slackness. And it gives a little illustration there of people saying, he's not going to come today. I mean, people have been waiting for Jesus to come since the apostles day. He's not going to come. Oh, we've got plenty of time, man. And then we're warned guys, Peter says he's going to come and he's going to dissolve the earth with a fervent heat. And he's going to set up his, his final new heaven and new earth. Be ready. It's going to happen. He's not slack like some people are slack. Anybody here work with somebody who's a slacker? You know, the Lord's not like that guy. You know, the Lord is faithful concerning his promises. The Bible says that his promises are yes and amen. You can take him to the bank. 
And so you can either be a good and faithful servant helping out and healing people and pointing them towards Jesus, or you can be the wicked guy that, you know, the cares of the world, he's drunk and he's partying and, and uh, beating his fellow servants. He's not encouraging people and healing them, but he's discouraging them. And notice that he was just a pretender the whole time in verse 51. He gets his portion with the hypocrites because he himself was a hypocrite. And then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 25, we're just going to go through verse 13 today. We read of another parable of the ten virgins. And notice every single one of these is exhorting us to watch and be ready. And, you know, because he's coming at an hour we do not know. And in verses 1 through 13 of chapter 25, we have the parable of the ten virgins. And why don't we just read the first 13 verses says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. You can hear the pounding on the door. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the son of man is coming. Man, what a sobering passage, uh, this, this passage of the ten virgins. Now, when, uh, to understand these verses, you have to kind of understand the background of a Hebrew wedding, okay? Um, the first stage of the Hebrews' wedding was the engagement. The engagement happened at ages two or three, you know, an arranged marriage. This was far too important of a decision for these little kids to make on their own. So the parents pick the spouse. And I know there's many dads in this room who would love to go back to the arranged marriage system. So afterwards, we're going to have a meeting and we're all going to, you know, barter with each other and sell our kids. Um, so that's the engagement. You know, the parents approve who you will marry, which is actually still wise today that, that your parents have a, a say. Then we have the betrothal. The betrothal is between ages 12 and 15. The groom's father, and, and, and as I read this, you know, picture how this applies to us as the church. The groom's father would negotiate a bride price for the bride, which was security for the bride in case she was widowed. Then they would sip wine to seal the agreement. This was a legal procedure, and if either of the two broke the agreement, uh, it was considered adultery and they would be stoned. This period would last for a year during which they would not live together, but the bride would wear a veil during that time, signifying that she was legally another man's wife. 
She would prepare her wedding dress with the material that the groom would provide. Meanwhile, the groom would begin adding a room onto his parents' house. Then we have the wedding day. When the groom's father decided that the construction was finished on the extra room, the groom would grab his best men and his friends, and they would march towards the bride with timbrels and trumpets blazing. The bride didn't know the exact day or hour. They didn't send out the save the date um, little flyers, but she knew the season and was in a constant state of readiness. When the groom arrived with the blessing of her father, she would run out to greet him and they would walk back to the groom's house where the celebration would last for seven days. Once the ceremony was finished, the groom would lead the girl into the room he prepared for a seven day honeymoon. Seven days of no labor was a wonderful period during those days. Uh, and the only time in their life that they'd be able to kick back and relax. During this seven-day period, the bride would never be seen. The groom would make occasional appearance and greet the guests, taking back food and gifts to his bride. Then after the seven-day honeymoon period, the groom would present his bride to his family and guests where they would partake in the marriage supper. Now, I love the picture of the Hebrew wedding because Ephesians chapter 5, we read about the blessings and the responsibilities of a husband and wife. That husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church, giving himself for her. And then we're told that the wives in turn are to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. And he goes on to say there in Ephesians chapter 5, I'm telling you a mystery, this relationship between the husband and wife. It's a picture. I'm actually talking to you about Jesus and the church. If you're really a part of the church today, I'm not saying if you go to church, but I'm saying if you're part of the church, then you're his bride. Even you big manly men, you got to get used to it. You know, I hate I'm a little uncomfortable with it as well, but you know, we got it. It's what the scriptures say. We're the bride of Christ. So let's humble ourselves. And I like that title. Um, (laughs) In Revelation chapter 19, we see the bride after this seven period honeymoon that we're in heaven enjoying Jesus while wrath is being poured out on earth. And in Revelation 19, at the end of the tribulation, we see the bride adorned and we see the marriage supper of the lamb, the bride and the groom united. It's an awesome picture. In fact, Paul says that in second Corinthians that he's presented us to Christ as a chaste bride to her groom. And so let's look at this compared to what we know about Jesus. The father has chosen us to be his bride since the beginning of the world. Jesus paid the bride price with his own blood. As we drink the cup of communion, it's not the work in and of itself, but it's uniting ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Um, we, are, um, we seal the deal with the Father. Now we see Jesus dimly as through a mirror, but soon we'll see him 
face to face. And like the bride, we're living in a continual state of readiness while our groom is preparing a place for us. Just like he said in John chapter 14, verses one through four, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and I'm going to receive you, Paralambano, to myself. And so as we have that all in mind, the, the Hebrew wedding It's a picture of the church, the bride with Christ. Let's look at this parable of these ten virgins here. Now, we read that there were ten of these virgins. Josephus says that the number ten, and remember Josephus is our Jewish historian friends from the time of Jesus. He says that the number ten is a special number, and it's a number of completion, much like the number of seven. He writes that you had to have ten men to eat a Passover lamb. Uh, You had to have 10 people at a wedding for it to have its proper significance. 10 men had to be in a community if there was going to be a synagogue there. It was also customary to have 10 brides, uh, bridesmaids uh, in a wedding party. So there were 10 of them. It's, It's kind of a complete picture of what the Lord's trying to get across. They were virgins, unmarried people, not with the bride, uh, not with the groom. Uh, They had lamps, and that word lamps, it speaks actually of a a torch. It's the same word used of the soldiers when they were coming to arrest Jesus, those torches that they had. Uh, And these torches would be cloth on the end with a wire mesh that would constantly be dipped in oil, saturated, so that at the moment of the strike of a spark, those torches could be lit on fire. And so we see that there... They all are there and they're in their wedding uh, garments and their bridesmaids outfits. And it, and it says there that there were uh, five foolish and there were five wise. The foolish one had oil or the, the foolish ones were lacking the oil for their torches. Now, the word wise, you know, they're thoughtful. They've got their uh, oil ready. But the foolish ones, it's the Greek word moranos. You know, it's where we get our word, you know what, you know, they're, they're moronic, not being ready. You know, it's not like the Holy Spirit's trying to dig on anybody. It's like, man, they've been warned that the groom could come at any second. Now let's look at the, the outward appearance of them. They're all bridesmaids and they're waiting for the groom to come. Okay. Picture your weddings. Uh, picture weddings you've been to, all of the bridesmaids look exactly the same, don't they? You know, they've all got the shiny red dress or whatever it is there where they all look, they got their flowers, they got their big torches in their hands, you know, that's how we're going to be doing weddings nowadays. Uh, They all look exactly the same on the outward appearance. Most of them are even the same age, but inwardly here we see it's it's a picture of what's inward on them. They're very different. Now notice, they're all waiting and anticipating a wedding to happen. They're all waiting for a wonderful wedding celebration. But five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. And on the outward, our outward eye cannot tell who is who. But let me tell you this, the Lord knows who is who. 1 Samuel chapter 16 verse 7 says, The Lord searches the hearts. He knows if you're wise and he knows if you're foolish. William Arnon wrote a book called The Parables of Our Lord back in 1869. And listen to what he wrote about this. There is not a more grand or more beautiful spectacle on earth 
than a great assembly reverently worshiping God together. No line visible to human eye divides the two parties, uh, the goodly company. Yet the goodly company is divided into two parts. The Lord reads our character and marks our place. The Lord knows them that are his and them that are not his in every assembly of worshipers. The Lord knows those at Calvary Crook County right now who are his and those who are just dressed like his. The Lord knows those that have the outer appearance of religion and those that have the oil of the Holy Spirit in their hearts today. And that's exactly what the oil is a picture of, the Holy Spirit. In fact, when Samuel was anointing David, uh, he poured the flask upon David and it says, as he anointed him with oil, the Holy Spirit came upon David. And we as believers have that same Holy Spirit, the person, the third person of the the Godhead Trinity uh, upon us today. If you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit revives our hearts. Uh, He regenerates us the moment of conversion. We're born again and he empowers us to be sanctified or to be set apart from this dark world. Daily, he sets us apart closer towards the light that he is in. But he knows in this assembly who has oil in their lamps and who's empty and just outwardly religious appearing. This is true not only here in Prineville, but clear over on Hawaii where Calvary Maui will be meeting in a couple hours or over in China in the underground church where Christians are meeting in basements. The Lord knows who in that basement is are his and who are just religious on the outside. And so in this parable, wisdom and foolishness manifest in how prepared you are for the return of Christ. We see that all of them became a little drowsy and slept, and that happens. You know, every day there's a part of our day where we forget that the Lord could come at any second. But man, then there's that time during the day when the Lord nudges us in the gut. Hey, I could come back at any second. All right, totally. I was was snoozing for a second there, but I'm ready. And then there's those that are always snoozing. They're always sleeping. Oh yeah, they're at church, you know, but they might as well be sprawled out back behind the sound booth or something, you know, just like, you know, they're always sleeping. They're never ready. Notice also with these 10 virgins, all 10 of them considered themselves to be part of the wedding. They all thought they were Christians. They all thought they were part of the show. They all had on the outer garb. They all were invited to the wedding. But it was a time of unexpectedness. And only five of them were actually really, really ready. The other five had a form of godliness, but denied its power, as Paul tells us in 2 Timothy. The interesting thing about this parable also is that in verse 6, at midnight, a cry was heard. A cry was heard. Behold, Jesus is coming. You could put in there. Jesus is coming. 
Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and tried to get their Zippo out and (laughs) they tried to trim their lamps and get it, get it burning. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answer saying, no, less there's not enough for both of us, but go and buy some for yourself. That obviously would be a long process. Guys, the moral of the story, the huge application for us today is that it is impossible to borrow oil. Okay. Or it's impossible to borrow salvation. On that day, you're not going to be able to say in the instant that Jesus is coming, hey, Christian wife, who's been the spiritual leader of our family for the last, you know, 37 years, give me some of your oil. It can't happen. Or, hey, mom and dad, you're the one that's been living the Christian life and I've been riding on your coattails my whole life. Give me some of your oil. All of a sudden, it's impossible. The oil of salvation can't be borrowed from somebody else. Now, the good news is you can get your own oil today. The Holy Spirit can come in you and regenerate you. Jesus uses the term, you can be born again when the Holy Spirit comes inside you. He'll make all things new. And Ephesians tells us that he seals us as a guarantee of our salvation. It's like you have a big stamp put on your chest. This guy's mine. And I guarantee that he's saved. That's the good news. Is you don't have to be in the place of these. I don't know. If, If Jesus were to come today, I really don't know if I'd be going to heaven or not. Why are you so foolish? If Jesus doesn't come today, you could be killed in a car accident or you could have a heart attack or a stroke. Or those little witty comments you've been giving your wife for so long might end up with a frying pan to the side of the head. I'm just saying. Are you ready? Or are you foolish? Are you counting on mom or dad's, you know, relationship with Jesus to be what gets you to heaven? Are you counting on a friend that you have? My my friend, oh, he loves Jesus. Well, what is wrong with you? Why don't you love Jesus? It's been said that God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children. You can't rely on your parents' salvation. Oh, God's my grandpa, you know. No, let him be your father. Let him have come into your life and change your life and forgive you of your sins and pull you up out of the miry clay that you're in. Man, your sins are sucking you in deep. Let him pull you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon the rock. He wants to do that for you today. But you have to make the choice. And I plead with you to choose wisdom rather than being a moron. And you can today. And we're going to give you the opportunity to ask Jesus to pour out his oil on you. Bible says that we're like orphans who need to be adopted. And God chooses us and adopts us. And after the adoption, he puts his stamp on us 
saying that we're his. And you can be his today. And we're going to go ahead and that's where we'll, we'll close today. We'll have Stuart and the worship team come up. And you can just put your Bibles down. And And I want to ask you today, just every head bowed and every eye closed, I want you to examine yourself. You know, Hebrews tells us that we're to examine ourselves daily to see if we're of the faith. It's a good thing to examine ourselves. I want you to examine yourself. You know, are you just a religious person who has, you have all of the outward appearances of a Christian. You're even claiming to be awaiting his return. You've got the church clothes on. You pack a Bible with you. And to the outward eye, you're a Christian. But between you and the Lord today, you're dying. And you need to be born again. And you need to have the Holy Spirit come into your heart. The oil of the Spirit to come upon you. The Lord knows those who are His. Maybe when you came into this place today, you were not his. Today you can be. And I've just felt all night and all morning, it's just been a a tough study for me. But just one thing the Lord has just impressed upon my heart is that in this place today there are the foolish virgins who have all the actions down but they're not born again examine yourself And just ask the Holy Spirit to come into your life to seal you for salvation. Ask Jesus. To forgive you of your sins. To cleanse you by his blood. To wash your dirty black garments as white as snow because the time is short he could come today and you want to be found ready just as you're here today I'm just going to ask you if that's you you know you're, you're not ready but you want to be. 
and you want to have oil in your lamps, why don't you just lift your hand up right now just to the Lord and say, Lord, that's me. I am just convicted. The Lord sees you and you. The Lord sees you. Lord, I just sense you speaking to me that I am just like one of those virgins who's acting the act and walking the walk and talking the talk, but inside, I'm empty. Anybody else? Just, Lord, would you just, Lord, today I want to set the record straight. I want to be a wise follower of you. I want oil in my lamp. I want your Holy Spirit in me. Lord sees you. Man, just enjoy this moment as you lift your hand up and just as you're being born again right now. You are being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're a new creation now. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are made new as you're born again. Oil is being poured into your lamp. Anybody else? And maybe it's a beautiful thing today if the Lord would just convict you that yet I'm just a religious person. That's what I am. I have no relationship with Jesus. You guys, that's what matters. A love relationship with Jesus. He is our groom and we are his bride. Man, today, just lift your hand up and say, Lord Jesus, I want that love relationship. It's more than religion. It's relationship. And as you've just been lifting your hands and, and maybe just where you're at, you just lift your hand up and say, that's me, Lord. And just receive today the forgiveness of sins. Let streams of refreshing be poured out on your life. Just give up to the Lord right now. Just, man, under your breath, you can just say, Lord, I give up these things for the sake of knowing you. I give these things up to you, God. The sin and the cares of this world. I don't want to be like Lot's wife who looked back loving Sodom and was destroyed. I don't want to be like the people in Noah's days who when the preacher would preach, they just kept rejecting him until finally the door was shut and it was too late. One lesson from the, the parable of the 10 virgins is that there will come a day, there will come a day when the door will be shut and you'll want to get in. And you'll pound on that door. Lord, Lord, open to us. And he'll look at you and he'll say, I don't know you. Today you can know Jesus. And today I encourage you, let him know you. 
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, check out our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com or you may write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thank you for listening and God bless.